You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here today with Jonathan Zimmerman, who is a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, and also the author of a number of books in the field of education history, I guess we would call it. I'm not sure if that is large enough to be (laughs) a field with its own journals and everything, but most of your work has been on the history of, I guess what we'd call K through 12 education, and in particular public education here in the United States with books like Distilling Democracy, Alcohol Education in American Public Schools, Innocence Abroad, American Teachers in the American Century, The Case for Contention, Teaching Controversial Issues in American Schools, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn, What Else? Too Hot to Handle, A Global History of Sex Education, and of course the books that I have with me here, which I guess you've moved more now into university education. So this latest book is called The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America, also Campus Politics, which is part of this Everyone Needs to Know series, and this book, Who's America?, which is I guess the second edition just recently came out, and it's an update of an edition that came out, I guess, 20 years ago. And when reading these books, it made me realize that as much as we like to think that education is embroiled in all sorts of controversial current events, these controversies (laughs) go back an awful long time, right? And so maybe later we'll get into sort of the culture wars, but just focusing on issues around the importance of teaching— I mean, I didn't realize that that these same dichotomies, the importance of research versus the importance of teaching, can teaching be taught or is it something innate? How do we evaluate teaching? Is there a difference between a good teacher and an entertainer, right? These things, we've been talking about these for as long as we've had a higher education. And I guess the question is, do you think in a hundred years we'll have the same controversies or will any of these ever get resolved? Well, well, Greg, first of all, thanks for having me and for pitching all those books. If you've read all of them, you're probably the first person who's not a blood relative to do so. But then again, we might be related. I mean, to your first point, look, we're always going to have controversies around education because education is where we decide who we are, right? Education is the realm in which people of a nation decide what the nation means and where they stand vis-a-vis to it. So, It's always political. It's always contentious. We will always argue about it. That's, to me, what's fascinating about it. Going back to Aristotle, I mean, Aristotle said education is always going to be political because every educational statement involves or at least implies a vision of a good life, a life worth living. If you say the kids should learn X, you're making a statement about what life is worth living and which kinds of lives are most important, what kind of lives we should lead. So it's always going to be political. And to your question about teaching in 100 years' time, look, I'm a historian. I I study dead people. I have a hard enough time doing that. I can't really prognosticate in any way. But I will say that just a certain amount of contention is baked into the way we think about education. I think that our higher ed systems have certain tensions that are baked into them. And I think the one between creating knowledge and disseminating it is baked deeply into our systems. Those are both important functions. They are absolutely related, 
but they are also distinct. They are different from each other. And I think there's always going to be a tension between them. Well, I guess one of the questions that comes up repeatedly is we don't really seem to have really good evidence on how much all of these controversies actually matter. I mean, to what extent are all of these debates a tempest in a teapot, more heat than light? Because while we're always debating what needs to be taught in the schools, we don't really know the extent to which what is taught actually manifests itself in beliefs going forward. And in particular, within universities, there's always this story about how the students come there and they just want to party, right? And they just want to have fun. And whatever you teach them, they're pretty much going to wind up coming out on the other side, believing whatever they're going to believe. I mean, do we know how important, say, teaching actually is? Do we really have any good evidence that tells us the impact of the teaching that we spend so much time working on. If you're talking about statistical evidence, I think it's pretty hard to show. But you and I are both products of these systems. And Greg, you and I can both point to human beings that had a dramatic effect on the way that we think and live, right? All of us can. I mean, because teaching and learning are relational activities. They are indelibly and inescapably relational and subjective to a very real degree. So if what you're saying is, do we know that in the aggregate, teaching like more college freshmen about civics is going to make them into better citizens? That's a really hard thing to know, and we don't know it. But each of us individually can point to human beings at every level of our education that had a dramatic effect on the way that we think and live. I know that I can. I'm sure you can as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's this one quote, I think it was James Garfield who talked about his professor at Williams, this guy Hopkins. And he said, what more do you need than me and Hopkins on a log, right? Well, that was the 19th century aphorism. And incidentally, Garfield made that comment at a fundraiser for Williams College. He was criticizing basically the bricks and mortar approach to fundraising, where, you know, you give a bunch of coin and they name a building after you. And he said, why are we doing that? Why are we making gymnasia and student centers? They didn't have student centers then, maybe that's us, but more buildings, because all that matters is the teacher. And the best university is Mark Hopkins on one end of a log and a student at the other. Now, this is complicated because, of course, this raises the question of what made Mark Hopkins such a good teacher and whether you can recapitulate that process in a real way. A lot of people like Garfield thought that people like Hopkins were just born into it. They were these sort of saints of teaching, and you you can't make more saints. And so, in some ways, the veneration of figures like Hopkins was a problem for the improvement of teaching because often it came with the idea that people are simply born good teachers and you can't make them. And of course, I can rattle off the names of my Hopkins, many of whom I had as professors at University of Pennsylvania, where you are in the history department. But, you know, the real core of the discussion in the book is about the relationship between research and teaching. And we all say that as a professor, you have three responsibilities, right? You have research, you have teaching, and you have service. And in most universities, they will say that your promotion is dependent on those three things. But in practice, it really does boil down to research, right? It absolutely does. And we do have numbers on that too. So, so the best predictor of a faculty member's salary is the fraction of their week they devote to research. And it works the other way too. Their salary and their rank are disproportionately related, or sorry, inversely related to the amount of time they spend on teaching. And by the way, that holds at every level. 
not just at research one universities, but at small liberal arts colleges, at community colleges, and so on. That's where the incentives are. Now, although this is, I think there's a consensus among most university professors, that's either the way it should be, or it's really the only way that it could be. It's not, it hasn't always been that way, right? So I think it was really, it goes back to the kind of Germanic origins of the research university, right? So with Johns Hopkins and those others, that's really where research became preeminent. You know, it wouldn't be a problem if, as so many people say, good research leads to good teaching, right? In other words, if there was no trade-off, if these things were correlated, and I think a lot of people, a lot of professors do think that it's impossible to be a good teacher if you're not on top of the research. But then others highlight that it's often a conflict, right? And those teachers who get the good teacher ratings are almost committing career suicide. I mean, I just had a conversation with a colleague about this, and he said, I hope I never win one of those Teacher of the Year awards, right? He's speaking of it as if it were a curse. And look, if the claim here is that to be a good teacher, you have to know a lot about your field, that's true, right? It is a necessary condition, but it is not a sufficient one. And again, all of us know that, right? All of us encountered people that were brilliant, that had done all sorts of fantastic research, original and innovative, but didn't know how to teach. So they are connected in the sense that it's a necessary condition. You do have to know your rear end from your elbow, right? I couldn't teach chemistry, and it's not because I'm not a smart guy or a good guy or whatever, right? It's because I don't know chemistry. I don't know what counts as a question or an answer. I don't know the history of the field. I don't know its mode of inquiry, right? In history, I do know those things, right? And I need to know them in order to teach. But simply knowing them is not enough, right? You also have to know how to translate and communicate them and how to engage people that don't have your knowledge or expertise in those questions. And that skill is what we have not succeeded in transmitting or even in valuing. Well, William James talked about you've got your discoverers and you've got your transmitters, right? And you need both of them. But I mean, if teaching was not a skill that could be improved through effort, then you don't have a trade-off, right? I mean, you could be a discoverer who also can teach or a good discoverer who can teach or a good discoverer who can't teach, but time spent doing research isn't going to impair your ability to teach, right? Exactly. So we can't make anyone better because you're either good or you're not. But more than that, we can't even measure how well people are teaching. See, this is something else you'll hear in defense of the system. You'll hear people say, well, we could never actually evaluate or reward people about teaching because teaching is so ineffable that we'll never be able to measure it. But come on, Greg, this is brought to you by people at research universities that have studied the most intricate forms of human behavior. It is absurd to imagine that they couldn't also devote that same inquiry to this question, right? There has been research on it. There's more. It's still in the nascent stages. But the idea that we could never know, that's ridiculous because that's brought to you by people who have spent their whole life learning new things. If we wanted to determine who the best teachers were at every campus, we could do it. We don't have the will. This isn't really an educational problem. This is a political problem. Well, at least at the university level, I mean, we do now, and you talked a bit about when we started to do this officially. It used to be done unofficially, right? So I was fascinated by all of these kind of guidebooks, right? So I guess at Harvard and other places, you would have this Samizdat document that would get passed around from student to student. They call it the Fidential 
scoop on freshman courses. It was called the Comfy. It still exists, by the way. Really? But we, now we have actually, I mean, most universities will have official teaching evaluations, then, and the results are published as part of an official document. We certainly have that at my universities. But the thing is, they're entirely based on the subjective experience of the students, right? So it's like asking the patient what they think about the medical treatment, right? So, I mean, why don't we make a greater effort to do something other than just simply surveying the customers when we're trying to figure out what constitutes good teaching? Well, let me say a few things about that. I think student evaluations are really important, and I think we can learn important things from them. And let me just give you a couple examples. Does the teacher return written work in a timely fashion? It turns out that A, that's very important for human learning, and B, it's something the students are experts at evaluating. Does the teacher make herself or himself available outside of class? Also extremely important for learning. Also something the students are very good at evaluating. It's pretty much a binary and they'll be able to tell you, okay? But is this an academically strong class? Did you learn a lot from this class? It turns out that the students are not very good judges of that, in part because they are novices. So they can judge whether you return work on time. And that's very important. We should ask them, right? But again, we're back to necessary and sufficient. I mean, I think it's very necessary to survey students. It is not sufficient, right? It is not enough. Because if I went to a chemistry lecture, I couldn't tell you if the person was teaching well. I really couldn't. I could pick up on some things. I could observe some things that might be of use. But because I'm a novice, I don't know enough about the field to judge. So, of course, we should be surveying students about the things they can judge. But we should also be engaging each other in the things that only we can judge. And that's what we do for research, right? The book you're talking about, Amateur Hour, after I wrote that book, I did not submit it to my students to see if it should be published, right? That would make no sense. And the reason is they don't know enough to judge it. I submitted it to other people who spent their lives reading and writing about the history of the university. Well, yeah, but we don't have peer review of teaching. I mean, um, at Stanford, we actually do. So at Stanford, you have to submit a teaching sample, so to speak, to your peers. At Berkeley, you don't. I mean, I've been at Berkeley for 19 years and no dean, no administrator, no colleague has ever sat in on any of my classes unless they were just curious about the topic. It's bizarre, but that seems to be, first of all, nobody really wants to be bothered doing it because they'd rather be out doing research. But secondly, I think a lot of professors resist that, right? They don't want their peers to see them. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I think it has to do with the culture and the traditions surrounding teaching. One of the ironies of it that I point out at the beginning of the book is that it's a highly public activity that takes place in private. I know that sounds weird, but that's what it is, right? It is extremely public, right? And you can walk around Berkeley and you can walk into any number of lecture halls and no one's going to stop you. So it happens in public spaces, but we imagine it as a private enterprise, right? And it's not a shared endeavor. It's just you and the students. And, and that's a problem because, of course, what we miss is the opportunity to assist each other and improve each other. And let me also say, with respect to observations, I mean, one of the things I've discovered in the book is that a lot of teacher observation is pretty facile in, in higher ed. And again, I'm not saying I'm against it any more than I'm against the student evaluations. Of course, I think people should be observed. But a guy, Dan Bernstein, who was involved in creating peer review at several institutions, peer review of teaching, he has a great line, which I, which I had thought of, which he said, you know what most teacher observations in higher ed 
it's as if somebody was judging my research. And the way they did it was by following me to an archive for a day. And then they wrote a report and they said, Zimmerman requested three boxes. He took out several folders. He took notes on his laptop about the folders. I think most of us would not think that was a valid evaluation of my research. Well, a lot of observations like that, it's a snapshot by somebody who isn't necessarily interested or qualified in doing it. It's not going to be representative in any way of what the teacher is doing. But I think a lot of the suspicions around student evaluations is that they seem to reward the people who are either offering up easy courses or are offering up a lot of edutainment. I mean, I remember I'd check my rate, my professor, and you could tell if I got like a two or a one, it was because the class was hard, right? <laughs> You'd see this. You'd be like, this course is really hard. Give it a one. And I was like, what does that have to do with anything? And think about this too. I mean, the best predictor of a high evaluation is the grade the student expects to get in the course. Okay. So defenders of the system say, well, the kids who expect to get an A, that's because they're learning a lot. I mean, I count me a skeptic on that. I mean, this is yet another reason why we shouldn't rest everything on the student evaluations, right? Because obviously they do incentivize a, a certain kind of, how should we say this, cutting of corners, or at least a decrease of rigor, right? If you want a high evaluation, assigning lots of work and grading it, in a rigorous way is not a good way to get a high evaluation. Well, let's go back in time. I mean, before I mentioned that this prioritizing of research goes back to the founding of the research universities. And before that, we had, I guess, universities that taught religion and classics and so forth. But that doesn't mean that teaching was any good at those places, right? No, you don't want to romanticize what came before because in the pre-research era, it was recitation, literally. I mean, most students don't realize this, but when they go to a recitation class, they don't have to recite. But the reason it's called recitation is if we were talking 150 years ago, they would, often in Greek or Latin. And it was a purely rote system. So you just had to memorize passages and spit them back. And everyone has passages in their own book that they like in a narcissistic way. And mine is this, some guy at Yale, I'm forgetting his name, like in the 1820s or 1830s, somebody recites something from uh, Tacitus. And he said, in response, you've been reciting one of the greatest pieces of literature without knowing what it means. Well, it's like the madrasas, right? So if you go to a madrasa in the Islamic world, you just memorize the Quran and you may not even understand Arabic, right? And let's also remember that a similar version is happening in the primary schools, right? In the secondary schools, people memorized the McGuffey Reader. There were 12-year-olds that could say the whole McGuffey Reader. It was like 300 pages. Yeah. Yeah, just like there are people, there are little kids that can say three or four hours of the Quran. Same idea. Well, one of the other themes in the book is that students have been complaining about teaching for as long as there have been students. But when some of the reforms that they propose get implemented, it doesn't seem to necessarily result in greater satisfaction, right? So you talk about, particularly in the later periods where self-directed learning and student-driven discovery and so forth... When schools have attempted to provide these types of instruction, a lot of the students push back and they say, hey, you know, where's my lecture? <laughs> I need more structure. So, I mean, is there any way to actually create teaching that isn't going to dissatisfy some subset of the student body? 
I think the answer to that is a hard no, right? I mean, just like you're not going to satisfy all the customers in anything or all the voters for that matter, right? But I will say that in the past two decades, and I don't really discuss this much in the book because I didn't have room and I figured people could get it in other places, but there's been a growing body of research about effective teaching and there's a pretty strong and robust consensus about what's most effective. And the most effective teaching is the teaching that engages people in their own learning, right? It creates activities that very specifically require the students to ask and answer questions in the way the discipline does. So the best history course makes people behave like historians, and the best chemistry course makes people behave like chemists. Now, if they'd been socialized to sit there and do not a whole lot, they may bridle at that. That's life. Maybe I would too if I were them. But look, if our knowledge and our professional authority means anything, it means that we do know some things they don't, right? And one of the things we know is that they'll learn more if they are engaged in the questions of the discipline. And I think there are many good ways to do that, by the way. So I think part of that point, though, is that if you show up at, say, university after having endured a decade or more of sitting and transferring the teacher's notes to your notebook, right, then you may not be able to appreciate that. I mean, I remember, I, you know, my earliest education was in um, Montessori school. And then when I switched to public school and, and I switched into one of the best public school districts in the country, right, outside of Philadelphia, I just felt incredibly frustrated. Where'd you go? It was uh, in Lower Marion. That's where my kids went. Yes. Yeah, so, you went to Lower Marion High School? So I was in, in that school district for fourth grade through eighth grade. And I just remember being incredibly frustrated because I had to sit in a desk and there was someone up at the board moving at snail's pace. And I guess if I had had that my entire life, then when I got to university, if the university was structured where, hey, you know, go do your thing, take your classes and go discover stuff, I might find that very uncomfortable, right? So, so I guess- Where did you go to high school? Uh, I went to St. Joe's Prep. And okay, you up after that, yeah, but, but left early <laughs> to, to go to Penn when I was just a kid. I started taking the summer classes and the evening classes and the CGS classes, and then transferred in when I was 15 or so. But it seems like the kind of teaching and learning you're describing it's very difficult to scale it. And so, a, a lot of the book is about this constant tension between what we might think of as high teaching quality, but in a cost-effective way. And so the professors are always trying to figure out a way to teach less, which means you have these tutors. And gosh, the poor tutors, they really got a bum deal back in the early 20th century and then followed up by the, the teaching assistants and the graduate assistants. And, and then, of course, we have now the rent-a-profs, as I like to call them, right? The adjuncts. Yeah, the great and proletariat of academia. Yeah. I mean, the great irony, Greg, of modern academia is it's probably the most liberal politically of the professions, and it's created the most brutalizing and unjust system of labor of any sector of America. It's incredible. No like right-wing reactionary could come up with a more oppressive system of labor than just having a small number of people that get all the goodies and then a vast unwashed mass of adjuncts getting three or $4,000 a class. That's where we live right now. Well, I mean, the reason why you say the amateur hour is that no one receives any real professional teaching training, and yet teaching is a big part of what you do at 
universities. And there were a couple initiatives that you described, which I found fascinating. One of which was this whole idea of a DA, which would be right a professional track where you would learn to become a transmitter as opposed to a discoverer. It was called the Doctor of Arts, the DA. Yeah. And at Berkeley, at least, I mean, we have sort of a professional faculty track and we have a ladder faculty or research faculty track and it's fairly regulated and the professional faculty are treated quite well and have protections and so forth. But even in spite of that, the folks who wind up in that job, they don't get that because they were trained to be teachers. And so when we go and, and recruit, if we're looking for faculty, the only way in which they would get to us is if they had gone through a research track, right? And then they turn out to be failed researchers, right? And so instead of thinking of them as successful teachers, we think of them as failed researchers. I mean, why don't we have this professional track? What is the logic behind not having this? Well, I mean, it just comes back to the way that research has been valorized across the 20th century, and not just valorized, but incentivized in a very material way. I mean, look, you're in California. I mean, think about a figure like Clark Kerr. Like, how did he build this empire? It was by getting research dollars, both from the, the government, from the state, and from industry. That's what it was. And Kerr himself, he's quoted in the book, he said, we've done everything great except for undergraduate teaching. He said, the system's working great. We've got all sorts of money coming in, right? The only problem is undergraduate teaching, and that's why he made Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz was going to be the antidote to this problem. It was going to be the teaching-centered school of Cal, but that didn't work either, right? Because again, once you get to Santa Cruz, they're going to want you to bring in money. Teaching doesn't bring in money. It does put butts in seats. But if we're talking about the real gold, man, that's NIH. NSF, right? Whatever industry you're working with or for. And so Santa Cruz is now one of the biggest research powerhouses in the world. And I don't know that there's any difference in teaching quality or emphasis at Santa Cruz than any other place. Everyone wants to do the research dance and everyone wants to be an R1. This is what David Reisman, who's the scholar that had the biggest influence on me, called the academic procession, which is a great name because obviously it's a riff on graduation. But the academic procession is everyone moving towards an R1. So my first job out of grad school was at Westchester University, formerly the state normal school outside of Philadelphia. You'll remember it, right? So it became, it was the first, the Pennsylvania State Normal School. Then it was Westchester Teacher College. And then, la, Westchester University, la, because that's what everyone wants to be. That's the direction that everything goes in, always. And we have not been able to arrest it. Well, now, Larry Summers, I think you quoted him as saying, if you want a good teaching, don't come to Harvard. Go to Williams, go to Swarthmore, go to Amherst. But even those schools are, you know, the research is primary, right? Completely. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was at Bowdoin College, and one of the administrators there told me that he had just come back from Silicon Valley on a fundraising trip. And, uh, you know, there's some very well-to-do Bowdoin people out that way, including the Netflix guy, Reed. Uh, Hastings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a Bowdoin guy. And here was the goal of the research trip. It was to raise money to give the junior faculty sabbaticals so they could publish their books and he could tenure them. So think about this. Think about this on the receiving end, right? You love Bowdoin College so you got to, because you got such great attention from the faculty. How about giving me some coins so the faculty teaches less? That was the pitch. 
Yeah, that speaks to your point, right? Even in a place like Bowdoin, which is historically they were teaching institutions, oh no, they're supposed to be everything now, but research is the coin of the realm, even there. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I mean, certainly here at Berkeley, I mean, we've seen some classes that have a thousand students in them, right? 2,000 even. And they have these spillover classrooms. So you're not even in the same classroom as the professor. You're in another classroom with the professor up on the screen. And when you get to that level of size, I mean, you got to wonder, why do you even need to be in a room? I mean, why can't we just Netflix this, right? I mean, there's that meme circulating in 2020, right? Remember Netflix, $10 a month, HBO, $10 a month, Harvard, $75,000, right? Yeah. Well, look, this is a chapter in my book. This was a dream in the Cold War, right? Because in, in the Cold War is where we really see massification of higher ed, and that's because of the GI Bill. The GI Bill is just an unbelievable story. By 1947, half of the students at our universities are veterans. Think about that, right? Almost none in 45, right? The story is incredible. They come back and like get married and have babies and get a degree all like in two weeks, right? You know, all these life things are all compressed. What this means is you just have intense massification. And people start to say things like, look, if Zimmerman or LeBlanc is a really good lecturer, why not have them lecture all over the country? And everyone can just tune in on the TV. You don't need to go to Symphony Hall to hear Yo-Yo Ma anymore, right? Exactly. And not only will there be enormous savings for the institutions in in terms of labor and bricks and mortar, but also it'll be better for the students because a lot of the lectures aren't as good as LeBlanc or Zimmerman. So they'll get the best, it'll be cheaper, and everyone will walk away happy. Well, in that chapter, which is called TV or Not TV, which is a sleazy title, but I went with it, I discovered a couple interesting things. First of all, in places like Penn State, near where I live, at one point in the 1960s, 20% of the classes were taught via closed-circuit television. It was a thing, but it was also a flash and fizzle. It fizzled very quickly because the students didn't like it. The students said that it was impersonal. And they said, to your question, why do we have to be in the same room? They said, because that's where the magic happens. That there's something ineffable that happens when human beings are together. That you can't recapitulate with gadgets. Now, of course, this question you're asking, Greg, this is the most urgent question in higher ed today, right? Why do we have to be in the same room? And I ask that to my students all the time. And what I tell them is, if I am just going to talk at you, I do think I could just be on a screen. There's got to be something else. There's got to be some sort of exchange. There's got to be some sort of activity. If I'm just going to draw at you, you might as well replace me with a computer. But I think that should be the question that every single faculty member is required to answer. And there are many good answers, but you shouldn't be able to evade the question, why are we in the same room? That should be the question in the frontal lobes of everybody because we don't have to be you and i aren't right now well look i mean everybody says that they want interactive education that they want sort of conversational classes where they want participation and they want interactivity and socratic method but there's an awful lot of pushback against that right so when you actually do bring that into the classroom a lot of students they feel uncomfortable particularly now, right? And so do you think... now. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, is that a sort of inevitable consequence of that type of education? I mean, can you actually have a small participatory classroom that provokes inquiry and self-learning without some 
necessary discomfort, right? I think it is uncomfortable. And let's remember that Socrates, who you just mentioned, he went around Athens basically asking people questions and showing them that they didn't actually know what they thought they knew. And in the end, they made him eat hemlock. He was not a popular figure in Athens because it is discomforting. You're totally right. It just happens to be the only kind of discomforting that actually expands our minds. We don't learn from people we agree with. We just don't. Oh, yeah, I hate Trump also. Yeah, yawn. What did you learn from that? Zero. Nothing. Right? I'm tired of people telling me how much they hate Trump. I hate Trump too. Right? I learned nothing from that. This is why, Greg, I watch Fox News every night. Because I knew if I watch MSNBC or CNN, then I'll just see my worldview confirmed. And it doesn't teach me anything. Do I get discomfited by some of the things on Fox News? Absolutely. And my wife generally leaves the room. But I just think it's important. That's the way you expand your mind is by coming into contact with things that are alien to you, that are strange, that are weird, that are discomforting. Well, if you watch Fox News, then I'm sure you've heard all sorts of critiques of higher education, right? They have a particular perspective on it. And and I think in this book here, Campus Politics, I mean, this is, I think it's what, seven or eight years old, but you highlight that this perception is somewhat incomplete, right? So I say that perhaps it's a bit exaggerated, but what inside that critique, you know, is there a germ of insight in the critique from the conservative side? Sure, and here's what they're right about. In the humanities and social sciences, we're totally in the tank for the Democratic Party. That's just true. And you can look it up, right? Uh, the last numbers I saw, anthropology, 97 to 3, Democrat, Republican. And by the way, who was that 3% of Republican anthropologists? I mean, my heart goes out to them. Only empathy. I mean, I feel terrible for them. So that's true. And sometimes people will say, oh, what about econ? And I look that up, it's like 75, 25. So dude, that's as good as you can do. That's your Republican. That's your conservative discipline. So We're in the tank for the Democratic Party. We are liberals. That's who we are. The STEM feels a little bit less so, but still. Okay. But here's where the exaggeration comes in. This idea that we're engaged in this sort of Marxist indoctrination. A, we're not Marxists. We're liberals, and they're different. And B, if indeed we were trying to indoctrinate, we're pretty bad at it. At a place like Penn, the majority of kids graduate and then go off into tech, finance, or consulting. Greg, if my job is to be a Marxist indoctrinator, I am one sorry-ass Marxist indoctrinator. It is not working. So that part is, I mean, it's, it's theater, right? It's not real. But the part about liberals and liberal bias is absolutely real. Well, I mean, I think that the venom of the debates is certainly more vicious at the K-12 level, right? I mean, we've seen political campaigns that have basically put K-12 through education at the center And in this book, Who's America, you talk about the culture wars. But what I found fascinating about this book is that you went way back in time and you said that throughout American history, there's been controversy over what's taught in primary education. And you point to, I guess you were quoting Walter Lippmann, right? Who talked about Dayton and Chicago. So there were controversies over religion, but then there were also these controversies over civics, right? Where Dayton is the fight over evolution in the schools and so forth. And Chicago is really about what to make of American history. And you point out that the religious controversies, they kind of 
worked themselves out in part by religious people pulling themselves out of public schools. But the civics controversies, they also kind of had this wonderful narrative where whenever somebody said, hey, what about us? That group would get folded into the story. And so it's like, hey, what about us Italians? You know, where are we? It's like, oh, let's throw them in there. And then black people would be like, what about us? And we'd throw that in there and everything was good. But it seems like in the last 25 years, and I think you quoted, was it Hunter Davison? And you talk about the, this culture war. It seems like civics has now taken on a religious flavor. Right. So the controversies all come back, except they've come back as one. Well, uh, here's the short story. When I wrote the first version of that book in 2002, what I argued was that the religion wars have no solution and the history wars have the wrong one. The religion wars had no solution, Greg, because they involved incommensurate claims, like either he was the son of man or he wasn't, either he created the world in six days and chilled or didn't, right? Either sex outside of straight marriage is a sin or it's not. And the history wars had the wrong solution because to your point, we just add another group to the same story. So this is why the textbooks became 800 pages long, right? If you want your sidebar about the great Kazaki American heroes and heroines, there. Everybody gets a month and everybody gets a week. You know, you get the, the title of the book remained the same, Rise of the American Nation, Quest for Liberty. And it was Jim Lowen since departed, alas, a great scholar who wrote Lies My Teacher told me, each who had a line I wish I had thought of, which is, have you ever noticed the chemistry textbook is not called Triumph of the Atom? You know, rise of the periodic table, right? So that's 2002. So I say the religion wars have no solution and the history wars are the wrong one. Because in, with the history wars, we just add in new groups to the same story without asking what the story should be when we think about the new groups. Well, Greg, be careful what you wish for, okay? Because here's what happened. The religion wars cooled radically. When was the last time you read about a big like evolution creation debate? I'm a little bit of a nerd. I can tell you where they're happening, but it's in a very minor key, right? The religion wars cooled radically, but the nation wars flared as never before because we're actually doing what I wanted, but we can't. In other words, think about the 1619 Project. That is a real challenge to the way we've traditionally taught history. And it's looking at the new groups that have been added, but using them to tell a very different story about the whole meaning of the nation. The problem is we don't have actually even a shared vocabulary for discussing all of this. So we got less religious, but then red and blue became quasi-religious. That's what really happened. I think that's the big story of the past 20 years. They became quasi-religions, but without the tempering effect that former religion can have. Whether we act like it or not, the religions say things like, love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, we may not always love thy neighbor, but we have that ideal. Red and blue don't love thy neighbor, Greg. It's like red and blue are like, no, hate on your neighbor. Your neighbor is a dagger at the heart of the republic. Destroy your neighbor. And that's where we live right now. So the nation is very much under contest. But that's not happening. That contestation is largely happening outside of the schools, not inside of it. Because we haven't figured out a way to actually present these different points of views to children. That's what I think we should do. I mean, if I were king, and we don't have enough time tonight to enumerate all the reasons that will not happen, but every high school kid would receive a copy of the 1619 Project and also the state-approved textbook. And the teacher would say, well, okay, let's start with Columbus. What does 1619 say? What does your textbook say? 
Let's do the American Revolution. What does 1619 say? What does your textbook say? But here's the problem. First of all, a whole lot of people on the right don't want that, which is why they're banning the 1619 Project. But I would also say that a lot of advocates for the 1619 Project probably wouldn't like that either. Where's the constituency? Where's the interest group called people for debating the other side in schools? More nuance, more nuance, more dialogue, more dialogue. You ever seen that on a protest poster? This is the tension. This is the dilemma that's hounded me my whole career. The sort of activity I just described with 1619 in the textbook, that's what I call democratic education. With a small d, right? Not Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, democratic education. Just small d democratic education. Because I think that's the sort of activity you need in order to become a citizen. Well, Greg, what if it turns out that the demos, those pesky citizens that pay taxes and elect school boards, what if it turns out that they don't want that? Is it even democratic? This is something I've never resolved, but I think it's never been more urgent because we have an opportunity now, precisely because we're so divided, to actually present these divisions to our kids. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to lose, and we're not. You want to win. That's what red and blue want to do. They want to win. I mean, sometimes I have to step back to try to figure out exactly what's at stake here. Because if you have training as a professional historian, then you naturally try to (laughs) separate out, even if it's very difficult to do, sort of, you know, empirical claims and hypothesis that you're trying to test. And then, okay, well, what does this mean? What are the implications for how we should think about the world? And so while I think that giving the students the ability to debate 1619 project versus, I guess, the 1776 project. In some sense, that to me doesn't seem like a historical activity at all, right? Because the question isn't really about the facts. It's about what narrative we want to tell to kind of string together these facts so that we can make sense of them, right? For how we want to view the world. And as you point out, if you believe that something is never changed, then you're more likely to believe it's never going to change. And if you believe that there's been change, then you're more likely to think that change can continue, right? And look, like you, I trained as a historian, and I really went into this project in 2002, asking myself why the kind of activity I did as a historian involving trying to make sense of the past and also critique the past, why it didn't happen in schools. And I went looking for the usual suspects, the bad guys, people you're taught to think of as bad, the American Legion, the veterans of foreign war, sons of the American Revolution, white conservatives. And I found some of that. But mainly, to your earlier point, I found German Americans and African Americans, Jewish Americans, Polish Americans, all joining hands to keep anything critical out of the narrative because they're trying to read themselves into it. And so... If you mess with the grand narrative, you're messing with their contribution to it. And so that was the sort of bargain we made for a very long time. We just added new groups to that narrative, said, welcome, come on in. But that doesn't work, actually. And the reason it doesn't work is it elides the very obvious fact, and it's never been more obvious, that we actually have different narratives about America. We do. That's a fact. And it strikes me that we could use this moment to bring those multiple narratives into the classroom and have our students grapple with them. But again, 
I don't believe we have the will to do that because I think both red and blue want their side to win. And they feel that the other side isn't just wrong. They feel like it's immoral, that it's evil, that it's harmful. And both red and blue believe that in different ways. And that's our challenge. Now, do you think this is generally just a question about history in general? I mean, history occupies a weird place, right? Because it's part of the humanities, but it's also part of the sciences. And so when we look at the sciences, we don't think that there's, oh, well, here are these multiple ways to look at fusion. Right. But when we read Shakespeare, we can say, well, here are all these multiple ways to look at Shakespeare. And so history is kind of like, well, okay, you know, either the Battle of Agincourt happened here or it happened there, but what does it mean? <laughs> you know, is it the triumph of the English or whatever? So is it because we don't really know what history is that history becomes the flashpoint for so much? I mean, again, there are obviously controversies happening in gender and there are other areas, but history seems to be this place that oh, is repeatedly the crux where so much of these debates take place. Well, I would say it isn't because we don't know what it is, it's because we do know what it is. It's the story of us right? It's the story of the nation, right? History as a discipline began with the nation state. History began as a way to explain and justify nations. That's what it does. And Eric Hobsbawm has this great line where he says, if nations are heroin addicts, history is poppy, right? History is like, it's the substance from which the drug comes, right? That national drug. That's what it is. But of course, people within the same nation have different understandings of it. And that, again, that's not an opinion. That's a fact, right? And so what that means is because history is the story of the nation and people have different understandings of the nation, it's going to be contested constantly, right? And should be. I think we should get worried in the moments where it's not contested because that means somebody is imposing a singular point of view on everyone. And we don't want that. Well, you talked about how some of these controversies in the past were diffused through localization. So you could have textbooks in the South that were, I guess, would you call them like the mint julep versions of the textbooks? And then you could have schools that back when religion was still permissible, you could have, I guess, was it these directed sessions or withdrawn sessions where some people would be learning about Presbyterianism and other people be learning about Catholicism? We say religious education. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if we had a world where there were a thousand flowers blooming in a gazillion different elementary schools and you could just pick the one that aligned with your perspective, then these controversies would disappear. I mean, it's the fact that we have a public school system. We still at least have a substantial number of people that we're putting together that requires us to come up with this common narrative, right? Right. And look, I mean, what you're saying is right. And I think, in fact, some of the school choice a rhetoric and campaigns echo it, say, like, why do we need to have this discussion in the first place? How about everyone who likes X goes to X school and everyone who likes Y goes to Y school? I think that's a dystopic vision to me because I think that we need to find ways to talk across our differences. And that solution, I think, moves in exactly the opposite direction. Let me be clear, I'm not saying people shouldn't have the right to do that. I just don't think it's a solvent for our woes. It's a concession. It's a capitulation to them. It's saying we cannot work this out, so we have to go to our respective corners. 
The other part of the history that's important is those mint julep editions, they told the kids that slavery was a beneficent institution developed by well-meaning white people to civilize savage Africans. And that was going on during my lifetime. And I'm not that old, right? When I was a little kid, that was still being taught. Now, one school might say, look, if that's what they want. Customer's always right. Right. You know, John Dewey spoke about the fact that we have little communities and that we have a great community. And the nation is a great community. It might be a very dysfunctional one right now, but that's what it is. And we are all invested in what everybody learns. I don't live in northern Alabama, the reddest part of America, but I do have a stake in what kids in northern Alabama learn. I absolutely do, just like they have a stake in what my kids learn, because we are all in this together. Now, unfortunately, we are not literally working together, but we all do share a nation. And it seems to me that the only way that we can save this nation is to figure out ways to talk across our differences, not to withdraw into our bubbles. Again, if I were king, every Wednesday at noon, we'd call it the America Hour. And if you lived in northern Alabama, you'd be patched through to a school in lower Manhattan for an hour. And one week, you'd do gun control. The next week, you'd do abortion and reproductive rights. The next week, you'd do the Ukraine. Greg, we could do that. It's not rocket science. Most things in education aren't. Actually, most things in education are simple. It's the politics that's complicated, right? If we wanted to do what I just described, have that all over America, noon on Wednesday, we could do it. But we don't have the will, right? Because a lot of people in lower Manhattan would be like, why should I talk to homophobes and racists in northern Alabama? And the people in northern Alabama are going to be like, why should I talk to Marxists and woke people in lower Manhattan? That's where we live. Well, let's circle back, though, to teaching. I mean, suppose there was a will, right? And suppose that parents were clamoring for, hey, look, I want my kids not to learn a specific interpretation or a single dogma, but I want them to learn how to debate. I want them to learn how to see things from different perspectives. I want them to learn how to understand nuance. That's a lot harder to teach, right? So if you hand me the textbook and the textbook says slavery was great, okay, and I can just read it out and everyone can recite it and everybody can memorize it and I can give you a test, it could be multiple choice and we're good to go or any position, right? Whereas if you expect people to actually question things, that requires a type of teaching that's in short supply, right? So are the energies that are devoted to picking the right curriculum a function of the notion that we need to have a right curriculum because we don't have any faith that we could teach nuance and debate? Yes, that's a fair point. I think a lot of the textbook battles, at least implicitly, demean teachers by imagining the teacher is simply transmitting like a robot what's in the textbook. And there are teachers that do that, unfortunately. But there are also teachers who don't. And you're right. It's much harder to do it the other way. And the weakest part of my new edition is I make this plea for this sort of dialogic kind of teaching. And then I have a four-page section called Reality Check, where I point out that the average subject-level teacher in the United States, grade 7 through 12, has 121 students at any given time. 
They make something on the order of an average of $55,000 a year. A quarter of them, a full 25%, have another job to make ends meet. And if you're talking about history, a lot of them don't have the academic preparation to do what I'm talking about. Because you can be a history teacher in some parts of this country having taken a couple of history courses in college. Also, you know what they call the history teacher at 3 p.m., right? Coach, a lot of athletic coaches, they just give the guy, usually a guy, a history course because, you know, who cares or that's easy or he can just, to your point, read out of the textbook. So these are enormous problems. They're different from each other, right? One of them is a resource problem. Another is a preparation problem, but they're all real, right? And again, I couldn't teach chemistry. I could make you memorize the periodic table for sure. But I think most reasonable people would say that's not teaching chemistry because I don't have the discipline. You talk about how in the 19th century, when they faced enrollment pressures, they would just draft the custodian or somebody in the hand and say, here, just read this stuff. Why not? A warm body. Yeah. Well, I guess let me just ask this last question, which is in the book Campus Politics, you talk about the role of administrators. And we've seen this massive increase in the ratio of administrators to teachers and to researchers. And in higher ed. And, yeah. In higher ed, yeah. And you talk about the irony of how when students, even though they have no love for administrators, their solution to every complaint is add in some more <laughs> administrators. More administrators, yep. So, I mean, do you think we could improve? I mean, first of all, how do you explain that? And even in the world of Teaching. One of the positives, I think, in the book is that we have seen an expansion in the presence of these teaching centers, centers for teaching and learning. I think all of my colleagues at the business schools certainly care about teaching somewhat, and they're willing to take advantage of resources that are given to them. But do you think that the administrative bloat, I guess, it would be that would be a, maybe a pejorative term, do you think that that ratio of administrators to teachers has maybe deprived the teaching of resources? I mean, we could be investing more resources in enhancing the teaching capacity. How, how does... Of course we could. I mean, just one side note, though, on the Centers for Teaching and Learning, of course, I'm a supporter of them and I'm friends with a fantastic guy, Bruce Lenthal, who's the head of our CTL. But in some ways, they prove the opposite of what they're trying to do. So I have a line in the book where this guy at Colby College, he was an old-timer, I'm sure he was younger than I am now, they're making a center for teaching and learning at this tiny little school in Maine. And he's reading about it and he writes, a center for teaching and learning, isn't that what Colby College is? Yeah, I saw that. And the answer, of course, is no, not anymore. So they're one of these things that sort of prove their opposite. It's like if you go to a new town and you see a sign and it says authentic Chinese food, it's probably not authentic. The very word shows its opposite. But to take the thrust of your question, look, the great story in higher ed in the past 20 years is the rise of the administrative university. So when I was younger, there were fewer administrators and faculty, and then it crosses in the 90s, and now there are more administrators and faculty, right? And sometimes this is for a very good reason. I mean, think about the whole mental health apparatus. Those are almost all non-faculty members, and I think that's very important. So it's not like I'm against administrators at all. But I do think that these decisions we've made as institutions have really important consequences for, well, the way that we think about students, the way we think about politics and teaching. It socializes our students to administrative solutions. They have become administrative people. 
So in the book you're talking about, I quote Hillary Rodham's speech at Wellesley College. By the way, the first student to speak at a Wellesley graduation was Hillary Rodham. Hillary Rodham was an unbelievably impressive figure, is an incredibly impressive figure. And the speech, which you can find on the internet, is quite remarkable because what she brags about is how many rules they got rid of. That's really what it is. It's like, we had all these curricular rules, we got rid of those. We had all these in loco parentis rules about who can be in whose room, we got rid of those, right? We're wresting power from the administration. Now, when something terrible happens, people want more administrators. At my own campus, there was this awful event at a fraternity. And the next weekend, there was a whole line of kids trying to get into the fraternity. This is after they had petitioned the university to close it. And I asked one of my students, like, why were people still going to the fraternity? And she said, well, that's where the good parties are. So if you really want to close the fraternity, I've got a better idea. Let's leave the administration out of it and just boycott it. Tell everyone not to go. Make a human chain in front of it. Leave the administrators out. But see, we've socialized people to the opposite. The opposite of what Hillary Rodham experienced, right? And we've led them to demand and expect the administrators to solve everything. It's always sad to me, like when there's some terrible event on campus, somebody says some racist thing where hey, there's a swastika painted somewhere. Everybody says they want a statement from the president. And then the president releases a statement and it says what you would expect, what you or I would say. The hate is a horrible thing. Swastika is a horrible thing. We don't like it. But just think about this. It's, oh, great God or goddess president, say the magic incantation that will make everything better. It's disempowering. It's really what it is. And to go to your question about teaching, I mean, look, these people, these administrators, let's face it, they've also taken over a lot of things that faculty used to do. Take advising. Where I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, the faculty don't advise the students, the undergrads. That is outsourced to Advisors, Inc., as I call them, a whole other category of bureaucrat. And again, I've got nothing against these people. They're fantastic, right? But at the same time, they do what I used to do. And what does that say to everyone? It says that the faculty are not really engaged in the moral formation of the students, that we've outsourced that to. And that, that's really sad. Well, you know, in my business school, we just had a committee formed to re-examine all aspects of the MBA curriculum and the MBA student experience. And there was a committee of 12 people. And there was one faculty member <laughs> on there and I'm not sure if it was because he got teaching points or not, but you know, in some sense, this is what the faculty want. I mean, to some extent, it's, hey, I don't have to deal with that. Everyone walks away happy. That's the problem, is everyone is behaving in accord with their interests. It's just what, if there was an organizational sociologist listening to this, they would just say, well, of course, everyone behaves in accord with the interests of their guild or their team, Right. But you see, I'm a historian. I'm not an organizational sociologist. And the difference, I think, is that I can't put it any other way. I think history is a moral discipline. That's what it is. It is a bunch of stories, but these stories are morality plays in a very real way. And when these institutions we work at, Greg, started, 
it was taken for granted that the faculty were in the business of trying to make better people. That was just a prima facie assumption. If you went up to most of my colleagues and you said, hey, are you trying to make better people? I think you get a number of responses. Some people might say, like all professors, now what do you mean by better? But then I think a lot of people would just be baffled. They'd be like, no, like I'm just trying to teach chemistry or whatever it is I teach. I leave the rest of it to, I don't know, the advisors, the mental health apparatus, the, the extracurriculum and all the student life people, right? The RAs, right? That's what they do. I just teach chemistry. Well, to end where we began, I mean, if the educational experience does have an impact on what our students ultimately become, then we should at least be conscious and explicit about what we're trying to do, right? So if it is going to impact them, then we ought to think carefully about how it is that we are impacting them, right? Yeah, much more carefully, especially right now for two reasons. First of all, the states have radically disinvested in higher ed. This is the big story, I think, since about the 1970s. And secondly, if you look at the poll literature, Greg, Americans don't like us. This is, by the way, not a memo that a lot of people at places like Berkeley and Penn have gotten, but it's true. It's as true as the day is long. Democrats don't like us. We're too expensive and Republicans don't like us because we're too woke. But the overall reputation and credibility of higher ed has diminished radically. And Greg, we have not done ourselves proud. I think we have to make a much better case for what we do if we want anybody to give us more. Well, John, thanks so much. Lots more to talk about. We didn't even get into sex ed or alcohol ed, but that'll be that for another time. Here's the book. It's called Amateur Hour, and I encourage anybody who's at the university to take a look at the history of our teaching in America and also campus politics, nice summation Who's America, and so many others. Let's talk again soon. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>